thank you all for your generosity and being able just to be able to partner with uh, people around the state and being able to be a blessing to them as they are trying to bless the people around them. So thank you for all that join a part of this great ministry called Dollar Club. Um, well, good morning and welcome to those that are here, those that are joining online. We are in week three of this year-long series that we've called Relevant. We're looking at these ancient words found in Scripture and seeing how those ancient words are still relevant and applicable in our lives today. Um, throughout this year, we're going to be teaching on Sunday mornings from Genesis all the way to Revelation, but then also as a church family, we're going on this journey of reading through the Bible in a year on our own as, way, on our own as well. So if you haven't gotten any of those resources, there's plenty out there in the lobby, some reading plans, some copies of, of the story. Grab one of those. Uh, join with us in this year-long journey as we begin to see how we can apply God's ancient words into our lives. Let me pray for us as we get started. Father, we are so thankful. Uh, thankful for a time to gather uh, as your people to sing back our worship to you. Um, thank you for the ways in which you've already been moving in the hearts of people here. We pray now, God, that you would open up our minds, open up our hearts to receive from you and your word this morning so that we can leave here changed as a result of encountering you and your word this morning. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. We're going to make our slow journey through the book of Genesis. If you want to, go ahead and turn to Genesis 3. And let me give you just a, a real quick reminder. Andy kind of gave us this reminder last week, but I think it's important for us to understand what the purpose of the book of Genesis is, what the background, what the context is. Uh, otherwise, we can get confused about how we apply this to our lives. So we need to remember that this is not a, a science book. It's not even an exhaustive history of the world. But what this is, it's a family history put together by this man named Moses under the inspiration of God. And so after Moses has rescued the Israelites, and we're going to get to this part of the story a little bit later, but after Moses has rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and he's leading them to the promised land, they needed to understand some things. They need to understand who God was, uh, where they came from as a nation, and what God's purpose was for them as a nation. And that's the book of Genesis in a nutshell. So he begins in Genesis chapter 1, and he describes this all-powerful, preeminent God that's existed before anything else. And then Genesis 2 begins to describe the ways that things are supposed to be, that, that all of creation was created good, and that God created mankind to be in a good relationship, a personal relationship that would last for eternity in paradise. So Genesis 2 ends on this high note of the power of God and the goodness of God and the goodness of his creation. And as Moses is leading these Israelites into the wilderness, undoubtedly they began to ask some questions like, okay, then what happened? If God is good and if creation was meant to be good, then why were we enslaved for generation after generation? And why is life so hard? And I think if we're honest, we've all asked that same question before in our own lives. We, we look around and we go, why is the world so messed up? What, what happened to the good creation that this good God created? I mean, I see the headlines of the devastation in, in Ukraine, and like, that, that's not good. I, I see the destruction of natural disasters, the, the, the tornado that, that hit Alabama a couple weeks ago, and like, that, that's not good. And I see marriages falling apart, and I see friendships falling apart because of, of bitterness and lies. And and then we look around and we see the abuse and the abandonment and the addictions throughout our state that are just feeding the foster care system. And then I look in the mirror and I see my own pride. I see my own anger. I see my own self-righteousness. And none of that is good. The truth is that we don't have to look too hard to find 
the brokenness and the pain and the hardship and the injustice in the world around us. And Genesis 3 tells us where that came from. Genesis 3 is a story that's well-known. Whether you are a believer or not, undoubtedly you have heard this story. This is the story of Adam and Eve. And so as Moses is answering this question, uh, this potential question that these Israelites had, he says, let me explain why the world is the way it is. God created us, and he created the world perfect, but that quickly unraveled. And now you and we, we're caught up in the wake of something that happened with the first people, with Adam and Eve. Theologically, it's called the fall. It's the curse of sin that fell on all of creation afterwards. And this third chapter in the Bible explains the origins of so much of the frustration and the hurt and the grief that we experience as we walk through this broken world. So here's a quick roadmap of where we're going to go this morning. Genesis 3 is going to describe for us three different things. It's going to describe for us the cause of sin, the consequences of sin, and then the cure for sin. It's an incredible chapter. And what we're going to do is I want us to see what happened back then and then see how it remains relevant in our lives today. So we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, "Serpent, uh, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now immediately, we're introduced to this serpent, and it raises a lot of questions in our minds. Who is the serpent? Where did he come from, and how did he end up in the garden? And the truth is that there's a lot that we don't know. We're kind of swimming in the deep end of the mystery pool. There's a lot that the Bible just is silent. I guess we, he, God didn't think that we need all this information. But as you read the totality of the Bible, you do pick up on some things. As you read the Bible, you discover that the serpent is the embodiment of Satan. Uh, Satan was a created angel. He was a created being to be a servant of God. But at some point, he led this rebellion of other uh, other angels to try to rebel against God and he was kicked out and they were kicked out of heaven and we're not given any details but at some point and for God's own reasons he allowed Satan into his garden and while there is a lot of information or a lot of things that we don't know what we do know is that this passage sheds some light on how this tempter still operates today and his strategy hasn't changed much he uses the same pattern that he used with Eve thousands of years ago and he doesn't need to change his strategy because it continues to work generation after generation so what we're going to do is kind of walk through the pattern of temptation and see if we can begin to break the cycle of temptation the first thing that he does is he uses doubt satan the serpent starts with this question of did god really say that you must not eat of any tree in the garden in other words he starts by sowing these seeds of doubt and calling into question the character of God. Like, would a good God, would a loving God keep something from you? The serpent immediately distracts Eve's attention from all the provision that God had given them. He, he had given them this entire garden, all of the trees and all the fruit therein, and instead, he gets her focused in on the one restriction that God had given them. And he paints this picture of God as being stingy or strict. He, he's trying to alter the image of God in Eve's mind, and he's saying, He's holding out on you, Eve. He, 
he doesn't have your best interests in mind. You, you can't really trust him. You would make a better Lord of your own life than him. You, you know best what to do. And Eve's response is telling. Because she says to him that um, you must not eat, that she's quoting God here, she says, we must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and we must not even touch it or we will die. God, doesn't, God didn't say that. If you look at what he originally said in Genesis 2, he doesn't say that they can't touch it. He says not to eat it. So you can begin to see that this doubt is turning into resentment towards God. In Eve's mind, she's starting to believe he's so unreasonable. He, he won't even let us touch the tree. And Satan tempts us in the same way. He tempts us by, by twisting God's word and, and trying to make it seem like a, a list of rules instead of a relationship. And every temptation in our lives begins with a doubt in the character of God. I think each of us in our journey have gone down the same path that Eve did, and that she began to believe, and we begin to believe that maybe God's holding out on us. Maybe God is keeping something from us, and that he can't be trusted. You, you think that God's ways are keeping you from success, and so you decide for yourself how you'll make money, and the rules that you'll use to make money, and how you spend that money. You think God's ways are keeping you from fun and pleasure, so you decide on your own what the physical boundaries will be in your relationships. Or you think God's ways will let your enemy off the hook, so you decide on your own who you'll forgive and who you won't. So the pattern of temptation, it always starts with doubt, and the enemy uses another weapon in his arsenal as well, deception. So Satan has her already doubting the goodness of God's love in her life and then he adds this outright lie and he says you will not certainly die in other words you don't need to worry about judgment you'll be fine and then he adds this half truth and he says that your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good from evil but what he didn't say what was just how terrible it would be or will be for them to know evil the, the weight of that on their shoulders. But he uses these lies and these half-truths to, to grow her doubt about God's character, and he's saying, he's holding out on you. He, and you're missing out on life as you're trying to follow his rules. Well, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're here today and you feel like you've been cheated in life, that, that you haven't experienced the good life. And you're beginning to wonder like Eve, that, that maybe God is holding out on you. Maybe his rules are keeping you from the life that you can experience. You, you see friends in your life who aren't following God at all, and it doesn't seem like there are any consequences. In fact, it looks like their lives are going a lot better than yours. And so you're tempted, and you're wondering on your own to say, maybe I'd be better off to, to step away from God's plan, to, to step out on my own. If you're thinking that, know that that is the voice of the tempter saying the same thing to you that he said to Eve thousands of years ago. He's the one that wants to make us feel like God can't be trusted, that, that God's ways will not lead us to the good life, that, that we have to step out on our own. Well, his deceptiveness worked on Eve, and, and rather than trusting in what God said, she became more convinced of the serpent's version of the story, and it, and it changed how she began to look at the tree, in verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye 
and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it as well. So that, that's the final step in temptation. It's desire. So, so rather than stay away from the tree that God had told her to stay away from, she began to take a closer look at it. And the closer that she began to look at it, and the longer she began to look at it, she didn't see anything that looked dangerous at all. And the more that she thought about it, the more God's commands didn't really make any sense to her. And she no longer saw the tree as a, a, a source of certain death, but it, now it was the source of the happy life that she wanted. And she gave in to the temptation. And she defied the authority of God, and she ate the forbidden fruit. And every temptation in our life follows the exact same pattern, that, that we doubt the goodness of God. We, we begin to ignore all of his blessings in our lives, and we key in on something that's missing in our lives. And we begin to believe the lies of the enemy that God is purposely holding out on us. And the longer we hang in that temptation, and the longer we think on it, the temptation grows to desire until we finally act on it. The enemy's strategy hasn't changed at all. And it still works. And if, because if he can get us to question the goodness of God, if he can get us to question the character of God, the trustworthiness of God, then our lives will follow a very similar pattern of disobedience. Now, when Adam and Eve rebelliously uh, defied God and his command, more happened than they could have ever imagined. Paul explains it this way in Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. The, the Bible teaches that, that, that Adam's sin affected all of creation in such a way that every person is born with a sin nature, a, a, a selfish bent to defy and to rebel. And it doesn't take long uh, to, to see the evidence of that. that. That little bundle of joy that you bring home, it doesn't take long to see their rebellion and their defiance. I, Sarah and I never had to teach any of our five kids to say no. Never had to do it. We, we never had to, to teach them to say mine. We never had to teach them to, you know, if, if a sibling takes something, you, you had to knock them out. That, we never had to teach them any of that. It, it, it's almost as if they were born with that in them. And that's what Genesis 3 teaches and what the Bible explains. If you ever wonder why you do the things that you don't want to do, Genesis 3 explains that. If you ever want to know or understand why people can be so mean and so cruel, it all goes back to here in Genesis 3. But because of the sin nature and the selfishness that was passed along from Adam to all of his descendants. And the next few verses are going to paint for us the devastating consequences of Adam's fall. And these consequences we still, with, we still deal with today. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the God. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. 
And, and for me, I, this is one of the, the funniest scenes in all of Scripture, right? that, that Adam hears God coming, and he thinks, hey, he'll never find us. Hide in the trees. The, the God that created everything, if we hide in the trees, he'll never see us there. But, but then Adam goes on, and he kind of gives the, this sad answer for the reason why they hid, and it was because they were afraid of God. And, and that's the first consequence of sin, is that it harms our relationship with God. There we are. Our relationship with God has been broken as a result of, uh, of sin. When, when sin entered the world, it completely changed the dynamics of the relationship between man and God. For the first time, Adam and Eve felt shame and felt fear. That, that wasn't there in their lives before the fall. But now that their eyes were opened to their sin and their disobedience, they were worried about how God would deal with them. They didn't know how to relate to God anymore, and so it created fear and hiding in their lives. I think we, you know, we laugh at Adam and Eve about hiding from God, but don't we do the same things in our lives? That there are times in our lives where we deliberately choose to do the wrong thing and somehow think, convince ourselves that maybe God didn't see that. Maybe he was busy taking care of something else and he didn't see that. But like Adam and Eve, the shame and the fear of our sin, it, it starts causing within us and it deeply impacts our relationship with God. We, we hide from him and, and we, we, we pull away from him. We, we don't see him as companion and friend and father anymore. We, we don't go to him and seek his help to overcome some of the sin in our lives and we pull away from it. Sin drives a wedge between us and God and it separates us from, from the relationship that he desires to have with us. But, but not only that, our relationship with each other has been broken as a result as well. Do you ever wonder why we can't just all get along? It, it's because of sin, it's because of selfishness, and it's tied here to Genesis 3. In, in verse 11, uh, God said to man, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And immediately, Adam says, yes, God, it was me. And I take full responsibility. You, you, you can come down on me as hard as you want, but you leave Eve out of this. Not so much. He throws her under the bus. Says, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Adam immediately goes on the defensive, and he starts blame-shifting blaming everyone, including God. He says, listen, I, I was doing just fine without her. It was your idea to bring her into my life, and you saw it. She's the one who picked the fruit and gave it to me. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, Adam was probably sleeping on the couch that night. I, I don't think that one went over very well. And we have been blame-shifting and making excuses for our sins ever since then. That, that's just the nature of sin in our lives. It it elevates our needs above everyone else's, and then it rejects responsibility when things go wrong, and it destroys relationships. God goes on in verse 16, and he tells her what to expect in this relationship. He says, your desires will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. God is making this broader statement that human relationships are now going to be filled with strife, with unmet expectations, with conflict. And in the very next chapter, we see Cain, who's going to get in a jealous rage and kill his brother Abel. 
And ever since that time, our relationships have been filled with this strife and this conflict. And we all know firsthand just how painful and how hard relationships can be. We've all been on the giving end and on the receiving end of hurt and conflict that, that sin creates and drives this wedge between us and others. What the Bible teaches is that when sin entered the world, it, it brought in all of the ingredients necessary to, to wreck our relationship with God and to wreck our relationship with each other. But it also unleashed one other consequence, and that is that our relationship with creation has been broken as well. That The world is not as it was meant to be. Mother nature is, is not nice, and it all goes back to this story. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. God says that, that the ground, that creation, is now cursed against us, that, that the earth is no longer our friend, and now we have these natural disasters. Now we have earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes, and, and now our lives are filled with, with toil. Our work is filled with toil and, and frustration, and death is now introduced, just like God told them, that if you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. And it wasn't instantaneous, but they began to die at that moment. Their bodies and the earth began to decay. And so now we deal with the consequences of that. Now we deal with the physical ailments of our bodies and disease and death. Genesis 3 explains so much of the brokenness and the pain of life. But right at the end of the chapter is this small glimmer of hope. And that's what I want to leave us this morning. We, we have all of this darkness and sin and rebellion and the consequences. And then God opens the door a little bit. And he says, I, I want to show you something. I, I, I already have a cure for this problem, for this mess. And he gives us a glimpse of, of how it is that, that he will conquer sin once and for all and restore paradise. And I think the turning point and the most amazing uh, verse in this passage is found in verse 9. It says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God came looking for them. They, they were hiding in fear because they thought that their, the consequences of their actions were, was going he, that he would destroy them. But instead, there's this picture of a God that goes searching for them. And he says, I, I know you're ashamed. I know you're afraid, but, but I haven't abandoned you. It's this invitation to, to come out of hiding and to receive grace and forgiveness. And it begins with this. It begins with a promise. And as God is going down and, li and listing all of the consequences of their sin, he turns to the serpent, he turns to Satan, and he makes this promise. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this is the first prophecy of Jesus found in Scripture. The, the woman's offspring is Jesus, and, and God points to this spiritual battle that, that will finally come to an end when Satan thinks that he has delivered this death blow, when, when Jesus is hanging on a cross and he thinks that he has finally foiled God's plan, but then his plans were destroyed when Jesus raises again on Easter Sunday. 
And, and with that, there's this promise that the power of sin will ultimately be crushed. And, and then there's this other part of it. There's this, a substitute. In, in verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. That, this picture of grace that God didn't want to leave them in a place of shame, so he comes to them and he says, despite your rebellion, despite your sin, I'm going to take care of you. And he sacrifices an animal in order to cover them. And as you read through the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, animal sacrifices are, are, are these symbols, these, these foreshadows of the fact that one day Jesus will come and he will make the ultimate sacrifice to put a covering over all of our sin. And there's a picture on page three of our Bibles of the gospel of Jesus. And God's saying, you know, it, it doesn't have to end with the fall, and it will not end with the fall. I, I'll make a way to redeem and to restore through a, through a promise that, that one day the enemy's head will be crushed. But by one who comes and makes an ultimate sacrifice to destroy the penalty and the power of sin. The only cure to the problem of sin is Jesus. And he died for our sins, and he rose victorious three days later to, to destroy, again, the, the power that sin has in our lives and the ultimate penalty, death, of sin in our lives. And even in the darkest of chapters in the Bible, that there is this promise that there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. And God wants us to experience and to walk in that hope that we have. Genesis 3 explains why everything is so messed up in the world around us, but it also gives us hope because it paints this picture of a path back to paradise through Jesus. So a couple of applications maybe for us is we try to find the ways to make this relevant in our lives. I think the first is to recognize that pattern of temptation. It's the same pattern every time. And if we can begin to recognize that pattern and we can begin in that doubt state before it gets down deep root in our lives, I think that we'll begin to see more victory over the temptation in our lives and not have to tumble down into the consequences of sin in our lives. So I think that's the first thing is to recognize early on, as early as you can, the, the pattern of temptation in your life. And then the second one, it is to clothe yourself with the grace that Jesus offers. I think sometimes when we deal with the consequences of sin and we feel that shame and that fear and that hiding, it's because we don't understand that God has already forgiven it and that we need to apply his grace in our lives on a daily basis to remind ourselves again and again that because of the mercy and the grace of Jesus that we can walk in freedom and experience life and life to the full here. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful. Thankful that, that you give us a glimpse of an understanding of why the world is the way it is. And give us an understanding of the ways in which we can overcome temptation in our lives. God, help us to, to see more clearly, to see and to understand the lies and the temptations of our enemy. And that 
through the work of your spirit in our lives, through the power of your gospel, that we could overcome his temptations in our lives. God, as we look in the brokenness of the world, you give us so many opportunities to walk into that, walk into the darkness and the brokenness of the world and to be a vessel of your mercy and your grace as we serve the people around us. And then, God, as we are reminded, even on page three of our Bibles, of your mercy and your grace in our lives, help us to to swim in the pools of your grace, to apply that to our lives, that we can walk in a right relationship with you just the way that you designed it. God, we do love you, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for coming out, guys. We will pick this back up next week. So uh, grab one of the resources out in the lobby if you don't have one yet, and otherwise we'll see you back here next week.